the old pilot's plain tales. Who killed Yogi Bear? The ejector seat that was my chair of choice for nearly 20 years is still a subject of fascination for a lot of pilots, mainly those who have never been strapped to one, and also for the subjects of a small island in the Pacific whose ruler supposedly uses one from a crashed SR-71 as his throne. It's often the opinion of folk, not part of the small fast jet community, that an ejection is a simple matter. You just pull the handle and boom, you're safe. Certainly the community of American, Black and Himalayan bears aren't fooled. Several of them were conscripted, I certainly don't think they volunteered, to take part in ejector seat tests for the United States Air Force B-58 Hustler back in the early 60s. Now, you may wonder why Yogi, smarter than the average bear, disappeared from our TV screens. It appears that he was one of several bears who were drugged and then fired out of an aircraft at a variety of altitudes and speeds to test the survivability of the Hustler ejection system. It was nice that they all lived through the trauma, including the one named Yogi, just suffering the odd broken bone, that is. Unfortunately, the subsequent medical examinations involved euthanasia before dissection, to examine for internal injury. Poor Yogi. What happens when I pull a rope, Yogi? I sail over the wall, the parachute pops open, and old Yogi floats to the ground like a fallen leaf. Let's blast out, Boo-Boo. Don't forget to write. Ready, Boo-Boo boy? Go! I gotta admit, you don't quit, Yogi. How about that? He finally got off the ground. The first human to eject whilst supersonic was North American aviation test pilot George Smith, who abandoned an F-100 Super Sabre at Mach 1.05 as it hurtled towards the ground in a near-vertical dive. He'd been up at around 37,000 feet when the flight controls of his fighter began to feel heavy and the nose of the aircraft began to drop, but then the stick refused to move as the flight controls stopped responding to even the most vigorous of efforts. Applying a considerable pull of over 200 pounds in an attempt to get out of the increasingly steep dive had no effect. The F-100's hydraulics had failed as the brand-new Super Sabre, just out of the factory, accelerated vertically downwards, Smith realised that it was going to be a very short flight. The little fighter passed the sound barrier, and he knew that his chances of survival were going to be slim. But then he heard a fellow pilot shout over the radio, "'Bail out, George!' At around 675 knots, he jettisoned his canopy to be met with the howling roar of the air around him, and he instinctively hunkered down, 
not the thing to do when ejecting. Then, with a mere six and a half thousand feet left, he fired his seat out into the supersonic slipstream around the aircraft. Hitting the airflow was like hammering into a brick wall. The force of the air dragging him was around 8,000 pounds, 3,500 kilos, producing around 40 Gs of deceleration. Mercifully, George Smith was battered into unconsciousness. The blasting wind stripped him of his helmet, oxygen mask, boots, gloves, watch, and even his wedding ring. Blood from the severe bruising bloated his face into a swollen, grotesque, and unrecognisable version of himself. His eyelids were forced open, and his eyeballs tortuously mauled whilst his internal organs, unable to withstand the enormous g-forces, were severely damaged, particularly his liver. Horribly bruised and beaten, his body flailed end over end as it tumbled towards the ocean below. The ejector seat, however, operated as it was designed to do, and Smith's limp body was forced out of the metal frame only to be hit by the shock of his parachute opening well above its maximum design speed. The force was so high that a third of the material in the canopy was instantly ripped away, but thankfully the remainder held and spiralling downwards, Smith was deposited into the water, as luck would have it, only 75 yards from a fishing boat. Smith's luck held, as the boat's skipper was a former Navy rescue expert, and within minutes they had him on board and were powering the short distance to the shore and help. When he was brought into hospital, George Smith was close to death, with severe internal blood loss and only a faint pulse. The doctors worked on him for hours, and their dedication and skill was rewarded a week later when he regained consciousness, able to hear but blind. His recovery was slow and punctuated with more operations, and his weight fell to only 150 pounds, a mere 68 kilos. His damaged liver meant that he could never drink again, but eventually the hemorrhages in his eyes healed and his sight returned. Not only had Smith survived, but he was eventually able to return to flying, albeit in slow, prop-driven aircraft, but ultimately he returned to pilot jets. He even got back into an F-100, and he lived for nearly 40 more years. Not all ejections go according to plan, or are even intended. Mainman Micah told me about the unusual and worrying experience of Lieutenant Keith Gallagher, the bombardier of a KA-6, the tanker version of the A-6 intruder, Lizard 515. He and his pilot had been flying circles over their carrier, the USS Abraham Lincoln, giving fuel when required, when they noticed that their left-hand outboard drop tank was stubbornly refusing to feed its fuel up into the wing. Accordingly, and in line with their procedures, they applied positive and negative Gs in an attempt to encourage the reluctant fuel valve to open. 
Gallagher felt the familiar sensation of negative G, but then something unusual happened. He felt his head touch the canopy above him. He thought for a moment that he hadn't tightened his straps properly, but before he could work out what was going on, there was a loud bang, followed by a roaring and buffeting as he hit the slipstream. He was confused and disorientated as he was forced back into his seat, his head against the headrest and his arms flailing behind him. Trying to work out what had happened, all sorts of thoughts rushed through his imagination. Did the windscreen give way? Did the canopy blow off? Did he eject? Amid the pandemonium that was going on in his mind and all around him, he looked down at a sight that was almost impossible to understand. Keith Gallagher was looking down at the top of the intruder's canopy, close enough to touch, through which he could see the top of his pilot's helmet. He was in a dire situation. His helmet and mask had been ripped off, and the full force of the slipstream was in his face, making it almost impossible to breathe. He managed to drag his arms forward, and he held them into his chest, trying to keep them there. Still trying to grab a breath, he decided the best thing was to complete the ejection sequence, so he reached down and pulled the ejector seat pan handle, but it wouldn't budge and he couldn't get his hands up to the top handle against the strength of the wind that was battering him. Below him in the cockpit, Keith's pilot was putting out a mayday call and requesting permission to land back on the carrier. The airboss told him to bring it on in, and asked if his bombardier was still with him. He replied that only his legs were still in the aircraft. Up above him, Gallagher was having a terrible time of it, the wind was overwhelming him, both physically and mentally, pounding at him like a huge wall of water that wouldn't stop. He couldn't catch his breath or see, and time stood still as he was suffocating. As he blacked out, his last thoughts were of his wife, and he thought to himself, I don't want to die. Setting up for his approach and landing, Keith's pilot didn't want to risk missing the wire, so he touched down just short of the number one wire, and as the aircraft shuddered to a halt, he closed the throttles. He looked up at the hole in the perspex and the jagged canopy shards that were right in front of his bombardier's chest, and said a silent prayer that he wasn't impaled on them. As the deck crew gathered around, it became clear just how lucky Keith Gallagher had been. His parachute had deployed and wrapped itself around the tail of the intruder, and his seat straps had been released, so the only thing holding him in place was his parachute harness. After recovering in hospital, Keith wrote to his old shipmates to thank them, telling the story of his recuperation. Half of his right arm had been paralysed due to stretched nerves in the shoulder and his left arm was injured as well. It was thought that his arms had become dislocated and that they popped back in during the landing. It took a while for all the damage and swelling to calm down but after much physical therapy he recovered and flew again, six months to the day after his terrifying ordeal. 
most ejections occur in the air, but for Navy pilots, there's always the chance that they might have to use their ejector seats underwater. But only a handful of pilots have ever attempted such a thing, let alone survived it. Russ Pearson was one such pilot who had been training for his initial carrier qualifications at night off the coast of California. It had been a long, gruelling day as he lined up his A7 Corsair II with the Meatball optical guidance system on the deck of the USS Constellation. As he threw his aircraft down onto the deck, he caught the three-wire for what felt like a perfect landing, but all was not well. He had let his A7 drift a little left of the ideal line-up, and as the wire pulled him to a grinding halt, he was dangerously close to the left edge of the deck. He felt a hard jolt as his left main gear slipped off the edge of the deck, and in less than a heartbeat, the plane was precariously perched above the inky black water. Russ shut down his engine, and as the generator wound down, the cockpit fell into darkness. All was quiet, but he knew he was in serious trouble. Then the momentary stillness was shattered as the aircraft lunged forwards. The tailhook had parted company with the arresting cable, and the aircraft tumbled off the flight deck, plunging down sixty feet before impacting with the water. It was like falling down a black hole. Navy survival training is second to none, so Rust knew he had about ten seconds before his aircraft sank below a hundred feet. Few pilots ever come back from there. An underwater ejection was the only option, and was theoretically possible in the A-7, but no one had ever tested it. There was also the chance he might eject directly into the carrier's hull that was passing overhead, or even worse, into one of her massive propellers. The odds for survival were grim and getting worse every second. Russ waited, trying to judge when the ship would be clear, and then he reached down and pulled the seat pan ejection handle. Nothing happened. During stressful moments, time does funny things, and the millisecond delay seemed to take forever, and Russ imagined himself sinking into the depths, trapped in a multi-million dollar coffin. But then there was a blinding flash of light. The rocket motor had fired, and in an instant he was out of the cockpit and clear of the seat, although still well below the surface of the cold, dark water. He couldn't breathe as his mask was down below his chin, and in the darkness he had no idea which way was up. It was like he had been shot from a cannon into a pool of jet-black ink. In less than a minute he had gone from being a cocky, self-assured carrier pilot to a desperate young 25-year-old fighting for his life. Just then he caught sight of lights above him. The deck crew had thrown illuminated ones over the side to mark the aircraft's position, so in the nick of time, Russ started swimming towards them. As he surfaced, he grabbed lungs full of sweet air, but it was then that he felt an excruciating pain in his back. 
What's more, he was also being pulled back under the surface by his parachute, which was still attached to his harness and acting like a huge sea anchor, and it was winning. As if this wasn't enough, he felt some vast thing come up from the depths and brush against him. Relief passed through his mind as he realised that, nearly empty of fuel, his A7 had bobbed back to the surface and was helping to support him. Hanging on, he eventually managed to find the inflation toggles of his life vest that had been wrenched around to the side of his body during the ejection and inflate his vest. Then he found the cock fasteners that connected him to his parachute and, in an instant, the drag was gone. It didn't take long for the search and rescue helicopter to find him and, for once, he started to appreciate the homely, wind-blowing, water-churning contraption that now looked like an angel of mercy. Nothing could have been more beautiful. Before long, he had been stretched into the ship's sick bay, where he found out what the pain had been. Russ had broken his back. The medical officer wanted to get the injured pilot to a shore hospital as soon as possible, but the medevac helicopter had room for only one and a casualty from the flight deck was a more urgent case, so Russ lay back, waiting. About an hour later, a young corpsman came running into the ward. He was out of breath. Word just came down from Air Ops that the medevac flight had engine problems and went down in the water about halfway to the beach. The crew got off a mayday and another search-and-rescue helicopter found the wreckage right away, but there were no survivors, not even the doctor. Naval aviation had turned out to be as dangerous as it was glamorous. In three short days, Russ Pearson had cheated death twice. If you enjoyed this story, it would be great if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.